Hello and welcome to Flavour Talks, the BSF's podcast exploring the wonderful world of flavours. Listen in to learn more about the people who make the food you eat taste great. Tonight we have Vanessa Rios de Sueza and Tian Yu from Agora. That's artificial intelligence for sensory and consumer science. Hello. So Vanessa, can we start with you, um, and then just uh, like give us a bit of a rundown about uh, your current position, your role, and uh, then we'll move on to you, Tian. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Vanessa. I work in at Agora as a computational sensory scientist and consultant. Um, well, my role is kind of leading projects and helping companies to implement artificial intelligence um, uh, in sensory and consumer field. And uh, my role is kind of a bridge between client and our technical team, uh, leading projects and, and helping them to achieve um, the best they can to, to manage their data and get the best insights and so on. Well, my, my background, I have a PhD in food science, focused on sensory and consumer research. and. Uh, well, in Igora, uh, we work remotely. I'm located in Canada, but I'm from Brazil. And uh, back home, I worked as a professor in the same field and also for a couple of years as a CPG independent consultant in the same field, sensory and consumer research. So yeah, that's a little bit about myself. Thanks. Awesome. Uh, very cool. Uh, well, I can't wait to delve deeper into that in a bit. Uh, and uh, Tian, you're up. Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Tian Yu. I am today, I'm still a computational sensory scientist consultant, but um, I guess starting tomorrow, I'll be the director of sensory at Agora. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you. So my background is, so I came from um, a little bit different than Vanessa. I have a PhD in neuroscience. So I focus on taste and smell um, on the neuroscience part. Um, but then at the, and then I did, after PhD, I did postdoc, but in the postdoc year, I was trying to explore um, what I want to do. So I came over with, um, came across with uh, sensory science and I trained myself in data science and I had my like first sensory scientist role in Agora. And um, I've been with Agora for two years almost. Um, and I watched it grow It's very like, honor experience, I, I think, to watch Agora grow to the size as today. And um, yeah, I'm very happy to talk more about wherever <laughs> I am Yeah, today. awesome. That's really cool. Well, thanks and welcome both of you. Um, it's, it's really a pleasure to have you both. Um, and I really like the fact that we're talking this evening to, to people kind of in, in like a, a sphere of the industry that is, is really cutting edge. You know, it's like people have maybe heard fringe things about um, AI and how it's affecting the food industry in general, and especially in terms of sensory science. But I think there's a lot that people don't necessarily un understand with it. So hopefully we can dig a little bit deeper into um, some of your roles and maybe some of the non-confidential projects you've worked on in the past, some of the funny things and some of the uh, maybe things that would be super intriguing for a listener. Actually fascinated by initially, just actually by both your backgrounds in the fact that your backgrounds are are very diverse, so like different from one another, but you're working, I guess, towards the same end. And it reminds me of 
um, a book I read recently about um, you know like teams of rebels. So having this um, this idea of multidimensional um, agents of discovery, and I've mentioned that on on previous podcasts before, but I think it really makes a, a valuable and strong team to have people with different expertise. Um, so Vanessa, can you tell us a little bit about how you found um, Agora initially, and kind of like maybe one of the most interesting projects you've you've been able to work on? Yeah, sure, of course. Yeah, so yeah, it's kind of funny because uh, it was like destiny, I guess, <laughs> that I ended up here. So I came from academia. So as soon as I graduated, I had my master, PhD, I became a professor, but then I came to Canada to work as a uh, research, uh, researcher in here for, as, as I took like a sabbatical period, I came and somehow I decided that I wanted to change a little bit my path. So I love like teaching, I love research, but I felt that a piece was missing. Um, I wanted to see my research like more like in a practical way or apply it somehow. So I decided, okay, maybe it's not too late to change my path. And I started uh, looking for a job in the sensory field here in Canada. And uh, well, when you start looking for a job, of course, you start like networking with people. And I connected to John, John Ennis, which is the president of Agora. And mm -hmm. uh, we've met a couple of years ago in a conference in France. And I connected to him and uh, we start talking. And then he came up with this um, position that I am in today. So he offered me uh, this uh, opportunity and it was kind of funny at the beginning because I was a little bit afraid of it's a little bit different from what I was used to work um, my position basically um, I work a lot with R like programming and those mm. sort of things and I was not I was not used at all I didn't know R so when John offered me and mentioned artificial intelligence and machine learning database I was like wow <laughs> I've never worked <laughs> in this field before I was more like at the beginning, let's say, collecting data, design experiment, um, and so on. So it was like a big challenge. And I'm very grateful that I accepted this challenge. And I've been learning mm -hmm. a lot. And I don't know why I was so afraid of R during my career. And now I work like many hours per day. And I really enjoy that. Anyhow, so it was um, through like networking, I met John and we talked, I met Ian and the whole team and, uh, and then I joined Agora a couple of months ago, actually, it was not that long ago. So, well, all the projects, uh, you asked me about a project, so all the projects we've been working, like each one is like peculiar um, because they are very like tailored according to the client's need. So they are not always the same. Um, they are all like very interesting I really like all of them but if I can I don't know maybe um, highlight a project the very first one that I worked was a really interesting one maybe like it was remarkable because of my first project was related to process automation so we developed a dashboard for a company to automate their analysis and automate the outcomes like the report the powerpoint um, uh, deck so it was really interesting to see how the project like progressed and how um, valuable uh, it was to the clients. Because usually companies, they analyze their results like using different software. Sometimes they need some manual, like uh, manually like task in between to remove, I don't know, attributes, panelists and keep like 
reevaluating that and save plots and then put together a PowerPoint uh, format, uh, PowerPoint deck presentation. And with a dashboard, like I was very like glad when I saw that in a few seconds, they could have all the analysis, all the plots and one click, they could have like the PowerPoint deck and everything, their format, logo, colors. So it was really- Yeah, it's awesome. It sounds amazing. And it's actually kind of like what, what, what in a way we're all striving towards, like, you know, like this automation to create efficiency and like efficiency uh, within our uh, normal um, stage-gated process. Mm. Sometimes you can automate quite a lot of them. That's, that's really cool. I'm just thinking when you said that, Vanessa, but being able to program something to do, to do that. I'm just imagining going into a meeting and just presenting something you'd never seen before. It was just literally just programmed before. You're just presenting the results to a client. You're like, oh, I better actually look through this to see what I'm looking at. Uh, I, I guess I was as happy as the client. I was like, yeah. wow, <laughs> that is cool. It's a good but way to yeah. sell it, yeah. Good way to sell it. Okay, so uh, that's, a, that's really cool. Because we're obviously in, we're like having this discussion with both of you, we're going to kind of play, it's a bit like Wimbledon, which is on at the moment, you know? So um, once you hit the ball from one person, the, the next person has to hit the ball over the net again. So now we're hitting the ball over to you, Tian. And I guess that it's a similar question, but maybe slightly different um, because I want to ask you maybe like a, a, a foundational question for, for some people that don't really necessarily, or don't necessarily understand some of the foundational things involved in AI. And then maybe you can lead that into kind of what your current role is or what your previous role was before you became a leader of the free world in your new position. So can you explain to me, um, just for everyone out there, what is AI? What is AI? Um, so this is, this is, it can be a tough question, mm -hmm. but um, to me, AI is, it, it does have several very, very like different levels of interpreting AI for what we are doing. So we can like a weaker form of AI and maybe a stronger form of AI. So what we're doing, um, a lot of the time we're trying to minimize like human repetitive work. So like what Vanessa is saying about automated reporting, those type of work, a lot of times, you know, people in a company are just doing the same, similar things, not exactly the same, but similar things over and over and over and over again. So we're helping them automate that process. This is already a weaker form of AI. We are also helping people to, you know, um, generate more like insights, right? The, we help, the way that we help them doing that is there's a lot of analysis that can be done like systematically almost. Um, instead of you trying to analyze the data, you do it in a systematic way and then you will end up with lots of results. And for the person who's um, trying to understand the data, he or she is freed from doing analysis, but try to interpret it. So this is another also type of AI. And also, of course, when people are trying to um, like we do like predictive modeling. That's maybe the more traditional type of AI is we are for a lot of the um, occasions, situations, let's say for, you know, sensory consumer research, the part that we're we both familiar with probably that we have the sensory part, you know, what's the flavor, what's how's the rating scale, all of that. And you also have the consumer um, 
reaction to it, the liking. A lot of times people are treating those sources separately. You're looking at sensory profiles where you are looking at the, the market, uh, how markets reacting to a certain products. But using predictive modeling, we're trying to connect those together. We're trying to learn from the sensory and make a link to the consumer data. Then if there's a new product coming, because this link is done by machine learning, by you know, AI, if you say it in that way, then we can always predict a new product, how that product will react if we have um, the sensory profile to it. And we can also just to have a deeper dive into that future product without the product actually being rated by the consumers. I think so all of those things are really cool because I, I feel like what we're on the precipice of at the moment is that we are now able to handle so much more data, but also so much, so many more data points that it really becomes this, um, it gives us the, the advantage of multidimensional modeling, but being able to see insights within the data that perhaps in the past we, we were uh, unaware of. So like the latent relationships between multiple variables uh, can give you insights into maybe why something performs well and something doesn't perform well. Uh, but equally, it can answer specific questions too when you're thinking about like maybe um, fundamental science, uh, especially with regards to, to certain multidimensional um, modeling com complex mm -hmm. systems. I think that uh, another thing that kind of you, you alluded to was like um, using a, a form of dimensionality reduction. You didn't really say those words, but I, I guess it's dimensionality reduction is that a, a computer is able to, to model multiple dimensions much easier than a human brain can because it's more intuitive to a machine. You know, so having these data points that now have attributes and connections rather than just static data files. You know, they become more dynamic and kind of agile in the way that they're working together. And I guess this as a means for gaining insights is awesome. You know, that like that's something that's brand new for all of us. Um, and it's something that we're, we're really just on the verge of starting to exploit properly to, to its full. So I think it's fascinating what you guys are all doing. Um, and it's really cool to be able to see how this is of so much value to the industry, but also to multiple industries. You know, like this is just the one that we've decided to, to work in, but it's really relevant to almost every single thing that we do is about um, gaining more understanding by adding more variables into the system. So, and Tiana, I'm sorry that I, I cut you off halfway, but I guess you were, you were going to continue and tell us a bit about uh, maybe some of the projects that you work on. Um, I was I was just trying to um, to say there's another another um, part that you can consider you know like advanced technology or or AI is to you know to use like smart speakers to um, to do the survey as well. So that is more like going into the future if we are like heading towards like a metaverse then um, there's a lot of the virtual work and we're rating the projects, not, I mean, rating the products, um, not um, in the real world anymore. And then, you know, we can use the smart speaker with a goggle or something, the, the virtual environment. And that um, is also part of our, what um, Igor is doing is try to help um, um, companies to explore this direction, to use smart speakers to, to do the sensory consumer surveys as well. Yeah. That's mega honestly the, that's so cool do you know what i've always wanted and what i've always like kind of dreamed of is um not having administration for administration's sake so 
uh, as like a, a creator or someone who designs certain products or even as a sensory scientist, you always have the job of uh, collecting data and creating uh, these methodologies uh, for, for a particular experiment. But then you also have on the side, it, it almost feels a bit like a part-time job of the administration to account for the creative work that you've done. Whereas if you're using something that is automatically gathering that information, like a smart, a smart speaker, then you're actually um, continuing your work in a normal fashion, in a normal way. And it becomes a bit more uh, intimate you know, with, with the consumer panel because they're just living their normal lives, but we're actually gaining access to that data um, automatically. Right, right. So, um, so this is definitely, you know, going into the future where envision um, those things happen. For now, though, it's still kind of more, it's, we haven't got to the automated kind of, um, like, retrieve the data part yet. It's still a very well designed survey, mm -hmm. we just distributed through smart speakers. So it gives you, um, like a new environment that you don't need to, like, use your hands to rate and, you know, going online and you, you taste your product and going online again, write it on paper. The interaction with the, with the sound, it's just like, it's more of like a future proof. Like you were going to the future. This is something that will happen. So at this moment, we're exploring, like it's very exciting to see how they are evolving and how we can implement this technology in many, many areas, including what you're saying, like, um, kind of get rid of the middleman we're yeah. delivering the 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 service and we're gathering the data all of that that is definitely one of the things that we're very interested in going to you know even like how web3 could play a part in this in this world um to get rid of the you know like a facebook type of middleman we're directly going from the product producer and the consumer we're just using blockchain and use all use the um smart speakers and other technology to help them kind of come together. This is so cool. Do you know, like when we publicize this, um, this podcast, it, we're going to have like hashtag literally every snap line we, that we have for like the future. You know, so we go like web three, blockchain, AI, machine learning, bang, bang, bang. And then everyone's going to be like, oh my God, this is the future. <laughs> <laughs> I find this quite interesting. So you, you say about using a smart speaker and, and goggles to be, able to, uh, to be able to take in surveys. So do you think, like, because a lot of marketing surveys for new products or, or new foods, you, as you say, rely on uh, filling out forms. And by the time you get to the end, you're not really interested anymore. Do you think by having this kind of design, you can actually record real reactions from people in the sense that psychologists may be able to look at, I don't know how it works, like eye movements or, or actual reactions from, because, you know, you put someone on an advert, like a dentist, to actually, like, say how good a toothpaste is, and normally they're not a dentist and they don't even use that toothpaste anyway, so. Exactly, exactly. There are many, there are um, other people who are more specializing, like, the facial expression, um, the tones, um, those psychological part of, of this of this part of research, right? But what smart speaker can really help is it is a real like a live survey. It's a real mm. time survey when you are tasting. So if you think about it, when you taste something and trying to remember and and, and later on write down all of the responses, there's already like a, a a memory involved in this. This is not already the first hand information anymore. 
depends on the product you are using. And sometimes, you know, we always use an example like shower, like shampoo. Those things are really hard, difficult to evaluate. So at this, in this, like today's technology, smart speakers is very helpful in those type of um, um, studies and also help with like when you're tasting something, you kind of focus on your taste and smell. And if you're like distract with biting visual, it's not the optimum one. Yeah, so right now we're exploring many, many um, use case in this yeah. area and see how, where we can go, yeah. I, I would find it interesting. So for example, like I, I, I'm so into like the social aspect of going out to eat, for example. I think a lot of experience does come from, you know, the social aspect of, of sharing food or for example, or that. So by having some smart speaker, like say it was in the middle of a table and you're all trying a product with friends, I think that would be an incredible experience because you can't really fake that, to be honest. It's so, you'd see interactions with people and yeah, just how people are actually going to enjoy it in the public rather than on your own at a sheet of paper, you know? Yeah. I think so. So all of these things are like super cutting edge kind of things because it like it links up to like this um, automated acquisition of of insights, you know, so like you automatically acquiring the data, but that automatically, I guess, will lead to insights into the way that people actually enjoy food. So what what happens with this kind of um, the actual moment? So the the eating occasion or the eating moment or drinking or experience or all of that kind of stuff. And I think it's it's really cool that you're at least exploring these different kind of senses or these different modes of of acquiring data in maybe a different way. And in a way, it, it does take out the middleman. So I wonder if you well, we'll talk about this later about like uh, um, biometric sensors and how that maybe can play a part mm -hmm. in the way of acquiring data and maybe some people's like sub you know subconscious like how to how to gain an insight into people's subconscious of how they experience food. Um, and, and not just tell you what you want to hear, you know? So it's about like uh, beyond hedonics in a way or, or real hedonics for the first time ever. And so yeah. that would be really cool. I wanted to ask quickly, so Vanessa, you kind of sit on the, the boundary between the customer and the technical department. So yeah. in a way you're kind of like the conduit between both of those, those players. Do you find it difficult sometimes explaining uh, kind of, um, maybe advanced concepts to your consumers or your customers and then vice versa to your technical department mm. how do you how do you manage that not to, not 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 really like of course they're like we have different types of clients some clients like each one has his own like uh, personality or knowledge and background some of them we kind of we have to understand what they they want because some of them they they want more like detailed information or more like um, uh, further explanation of some analysis. And we need to be able to fill that gap. Some of them, they are really advanced and we don't really need to go through like the details of something. So we usually like deal with like people really into like the sensory field. And uh, of course, depending on the level of expertise, knowledge and interest, we are going to provide more or less like um, details or explanation and, and so on. With the technical team leader, um, I guess this is like kind of uh, my role and Jan's role uh, so far. It's kind of make this translation to the technical team. So of course the technical team, their expertise is not in uh, sensory. They're like experts in 
um, database and dashboard and, and IT stuff. Um, but we are here like exact to make this translation. So for instance, um, regarding like sensory analysis, we are the ones programming the sensory analysis because we understand the data. We understand how clients um, want to see or visualize the results, but they are the ones like putting all together and putting a dashboard on top of that. So they are the ones building the dashboard and, and so on. And um, usually we are the ones dealing with uh, data cleaning, let's say for database, because we have many projects, uh, very interesting projects to build like database. And we are the ones dealing with cleaning because we have a better sense on uh, the data and what information we have there, how to put together. Um, but of course, like at some point they are involved on that and we are always like, exchanging like experience explaining we have a very good interaction uh, with our technical team and i guess we can say right here on that now i guess they're kind of a little bit expert <laughs> in the sensory because they learn like um the machine engineers like they learn uh, uh, um how like uh, like the types of models and the type of data they understand like sensory consumer jar questions they they know like all types of like questions and attributes and things in the sensory field it's kind of natural for them to keep like learning from us but not really i guess this is exactly what our position sits um like making this bridge and um, mm -hmm. making this link between client and technical team and depending on who we are dealing with we are going to kind of um, make it hold right, the hand like, more or less yeah Exactly. You have to hold their hand more or less. Yeah, that's really cool. And also, like, I guess, educate different people. Like, like you're saying now, your technical team basically becomes sensory experts. Having worked on so many projects already, they're obviously gaining knowledge the whole time. So it's all about this, like, knowledge transfer. Um, yeah. But dealing with a group that's obviously not an echo chamber, everyone has their own expertise and therefore a different point of view, which is really yeah. great because the final solution, I guess, you come up with is one that fits all the bills and ticks all the boxes, which is awesome. Yeah. It's really cool. Because it means that that's where we find real innovation and progress, I guess. Um, yeah. One of the questions, and I don't know who, who was talking about like uh, automation within it, like a business flows. Um, but this question actually came up because I was, I was reading a paper the other day about um, um, Markov models and hit, using Markov models uh, to optimize business processes. You know, so like setting out Markov models and then trying to identify where maybe you could uh, make it more efficient by actually taking some of the process out, you know, some of those stage gates out of the process in order to, to make it fully efficient. Do you guys have any insight on that? These are all kind of topics that I maybe want to talk about, but we also want to bring this down a level. And yeah. I want to ask you things like, like normal life things, you know, like now working in a field that I guess you, neither of you necessarily thought that you would end up having the jobs that you currently have. How mm -hmm. have you, and this is a question for both that you can answer separately, is that how do you feel like this job or the process that you're doing now and the things that you've learned, how has it changed normal life? You know, like, do you walk into a shop and like think about things in a completely different way? And I'll go with Vanessa first because <laughs> she laughed uh, first. Well, I always like thought about like the sensor word, it, like everything, like I, for instance, like this week, uh, I bought like a pillow with my husband and it's horrible. And I told him, they didn't do sensory. They didn't do consumer research <laughs> because they went to return. And they start said, everyone is returning this pillow saying that it's too soft. And I told the lady, yes, they didn't do consumer research. They didn't do <laughs> evaluation because it shouldn't happen. So I guess somehow we are always like with our head around, like, um, of course, like using like those advanced technologies, not only ways to collect data, but ways to analyze, to get insights, 
all like there are like a whole world of like cool, very cool like tools um, to get insights from the market to understand what your consumer wants and to evaluate if uh, what you develop is really what they want, if it's achieving their expectations and everything. So it's still like sometimes it's still amazing how we find like bad things in the market. And I keep thinking mm-hmm. I think they did their job well. <laughs> but yes. in this regard, I'm always like kind of think about like um, consumer research and, and sensory mm-hmm. tests sort of things i fully get that like sometimes i sometimes i'll buy a beverage so i'll buy like a, a new drink that i haven't tried before and i'll try it and i'll go why did they stop you know who yeah. came to the, like maybe they ran to a deadline but why did they get to this point and think yep i'm done because that's horrible <laughs> was it work that you did trevor by any chance i don't know that wasn't work that i did that has happened to me but i didn't stop and that was the key. Uh, I, I made sure I c- continued to develop until I had a project, a product mm-hmm. worthy of the of the store shelf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Vanessa, I, that's interesting. You say even just that experience of a pillow. So talking about artificial intelligence and how it can can say, uh, change consumer research. Do you think something like you know how would you pillow shop online? Just to think about that, or not you personally, but I mean like how does one buy a, buy a pillow online? Like. It says soft rating, but how, how would you even no, and can artificial intelligence actually make consumer research make better uh, descriptions or I don't know, for example, I'm thinking stupidly, but you know, when you talk about like your, your, your uh, when you cook a steak, how like soft it will be, can you not see like squeeze an orange or something and this will be. It's going to yeah. be 50% softer than that. Yeah. like. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question of course yeah some things are harder like to measure right but somehow like there are tools that can at least like understand what software usually means to a consumer what would be like the aspects or i don't know because there are like many analytical uh, measurements that you can uh, evaluate a product like let's say a pillow and what would be the range let's say of those analytical that consumers are like still considered that softer or medium or mm-hmm. hard so of course, that there is a way to kind of measure. Of course, like my way of thinking, okay, what is soft for me is not exactly what is for you. But in general, there is like two, there are tools that can at least like, okay, usually 90%, 8% of the consumer soft means like that range of our analytical. So in case our pillow like falls into that range, it's considered soft or medium or mm. hard, or even like work with the consumer to evaluate, I don't know, what other terms can better describe like a pillow for them to kind of understand the features and be able to kind of make an assessment online and say, yeah, this is the one I, that I want. But yeah, there are like, of course, uh, there are products that are trickier than others, but mm-hmm. there's always a way to kind of translate what consumer, like um, uh, what it means, like what the terms means to like, uh, it means to the consumers. And, and what their expectations are. So that mm-hmm. you raised, you actually raised like a quite an interesting point. So do you know when you say like, what, what what soft means soft to me is not, is not what soft means to you, perhaps. And that raises an interesting, like, philosophical dilemma of qualia. You know, like the blue that you see is not the blue that I see. And how do we how do we kind of resolve this paradox? You know, of how do we figure it out? But that's maybe something that we can jump to later. Tian, uh, <laughs> I would I would really like to know kind of how how you think that this your job or the field that you work in now has changed the way that you look at the world. And change normal life. Right. Um, obviously, um, I wasn't coming from the sensory consumer 
research field at all, actually. So, so I paid more, a lot more attention to those things these days. I think those are maybe the, the first thing that changed my like daily life. I just paid attention to every single brand, how they, you know, deliver this or um, how they package things, you know, those type of things. One more, one thing that I, I really, I really it kind of is packed my brain recently is that because we're, we're in the sensory world with, you know, taste and smell and vision, auditory, tactile, all the sense senses. Um, because we're exploring into the future of metaverse. I'm sorry, it's just this thing is in my brain recently. Um, how would we connect them together? Like, like it's some sense. So in the research, they call this cross-model association. So is this scent or smell, um, what let's say in the visual world, how would be associated to the scent and smell? Mm -hmm. That would affect a lot of, let's say in the, in the marketing, in the packaging, let's say in the packaging world, if they pack something like minty, they yeah, probably yeah. want something more sharp, like, you know, more like a mm -hmm. angular instead of a round package. Yeah, so this type of thing is is kind of get my attention, not just attention, mm. like curiosity. So I, mm. I want to know how with our sensory world today, more physically, like we go shopping, we eat, we drink, those experiences in a more in the future, first, how can we transfer that into a more virtual world? I'm not saying virtual world will be the future, but looking at how the world is going, it will be a big chunk of it at least. And it's more efficient to, for the information transfer, like all those things. Um, so how do we kind of harmonize those two worlds, the virtual world and the physical world? And how can we use like stimulations together, the visual auditory of that to, to how to make sense, the chemical senses, taste and smell part of the virtual world yeah the virtual world. yeah and so you know this is something that i've always had like a passion for but also something that i i, I always i say always not really always because i haven't always been in in the sensory world either but like ever since starting it i always thought wouldn't it be great if i somehow had a hand in in creating digital olfaction or digital taste and and but not just creating it but like actually having a having a hand in bringing that to um to the consumer base and making those things a reality, you know. So, like, how do you bring this this idea of gestalt, so this uh, like unification of this cross modality of the senses that already in our in our physical world they bring you this unified experience? You know, when you eat a, a strawberry, you're not picking apart the taste, the smell, the feeling, the texture, all of that different stuff. You you're experiencing it as a strawberry, and what you're remembering and what brings to mind all of those different things is your unified experience of all of these different sensory modalities being activated at exactly the same time in the same way as it has done in the past mm -hmm. and this it's another thing that so this is super weird that we're talking about it now but in the like not so long ago i actually wrote like i sometimes have these super strange weird musings and it, it kind of fits <laughs> along with the same stuff so in i was talking about it in general with, with regard to uh, create the creation of, of flavorings. 
and uh, these products that kind of the consumer expects to be the same every single time they try it. Yeah, so it's uh, we're creating snapshots in time and space. The ability to elicit the same response, irrespective of time or space, offers many appealing features and is paradoxical to the true nature of reality. So we have thus changed the perceived reality. It would be useful to organoleptically demonstrate this paradox with visual and associated flavor representation in order to explain, modify, and predict future systems and the influence they have on our experiences and our decision-making. So that note that I wrote to myself from 2019, but wow. that's exactly what we're trying to do. You know, that's, mm -hmm. And this is actually what a consumer base starts to expect, but it's a paradox. It's not what they experience in normal everyday life. Because if you went into the forest and picked the strawberry, it would taste like it did that day. But if you waited two days and went back, it would taste two days riper. The weather would be different. So all of your context really shifts and changes. And the virtual world now gives us an opportunity to really explore, I, I guess, a way of quantifying context. You know, like mm -hmm. what does context actually bring to the party? And adding mm -hmm. context in in order to give this idea of gestalt. I find that very interesting as well, Trevor. And I just want to add, like, I'm, I'm totally interested in this side as well. Maybe this is something you may be interested in, but it's just a kind of anecdotal kind of thing that, you know, I, I do a little bit of, of flavoring work as well. And I'm, my girlfriend's from China and I let her smell flavorings. And uh, her descriptions are so interesting because they're so different to what i would totally describe for example like floral which i would not consider something floral but based on flowers it may grow in her region of china which made me think is it possible on a molecular level to create descriptions from totally maybe this has been done from totally different cultures and then take intensities and like kind of order threshold because your threshold will change on your cultural experience of it and therefore create some kind of ability to understand how a flavor may work in a different country and what it may smell of. That might be more a question for Trevor. I'm not even sure. Uh, no. No. <laughs> no, I mean, that's cool. But like this kind of discussion is that's, this is what pushes the boundaries, isn't it? It's like, we're thinking, I don't, I, we can't even see the box. We're so far out of the box. So I, I do want to ask you guys a few more questions as well. So do you have any experience uh, with uh, like electronic noses? Yeah. So electronic tongues. And, and if not, do you have any insight in them, like into them? Would you like to, to start using those kinds of tools? Yeah, so this is this is an interesting question. I definitely heard about research on those, but um, coming from coming from like a neuroscientist of taste and smell, from my own background, because I spent lots of my like about 10 years researching about how the signaling pathways of taste and smell are working. To me, to, 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 to how they describe their technology as of today, it's a little difficult for me to wrap around if it's, if, would that be like accurate? They maybe capture a little bit of intensity or something like one dimension of those tastes. But this taste and smell is so rich that I'm still trying to understand how can that be like used in in today's in today's mm. technology and world, how would be really used? I know many people are interested. I'm own myself very interested in this part as well because that will give a big chance opportunity for this virtual world to be implemented. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. It's the, kind of the key idea, actually. It's the key. If there is a big breakthrough in this, that will be this part. One of, a part of it. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Well, yes. And yeah. so I think I so I think that there's some work being done at the moment. And to me, I feel like again, this is like a f philosophical question of of how we go about doing research. At the end of the day, we're doing it because there's a particular market, you know. So we're doing the research for humans because humans buy products. You know, we're not doing the research for ducks because ducks are never going to go to the shop and say, um, "Show me your best worms." Yeah. So we're led we're led by a particular market, and therefore we do our testing on a particular consumer base that is our market, or at least a, a subsection, or hopefully an accurate uh, depiction of our market. Yeah. But if we were to somehow use, I don't know, things like uh, biomimetic sensors and put our market into the machine, then it gives us actually more, uh, a more credible acquisition of information that we know has to be credible to us as humans. You know, if we're using um, uh, G-protein coupled receptors that are human, then we know that that machine is making those predictions or those, uh, those accurate kind of analyses, uh, whether you're using like bioluminescence or whatever you're using. Um, that is how we taste, you know? So we're, we're using the tools that we have inherently within us in order to gain insight, but in a digital way. So, so super fascinating. Super, super fascinating. Um, what do you think is what do you think is like going to be the next big disruption that changes all of our lives? As mm. as as members of the sensory community of the world, and you can you can say I'm sorry, but that's IP. Yeah, I guess it it falls in what Jan was talking about this whole like metaverse world and this whole like um, Web three and blockchain. Like this is gonna like be like our reality it's already it is right but maybe can yeah. further well but i really see that this is moving very fast and we see like um because when we think about i don't know if you heard about uh, like nfts i haven't heard about that like a few months ago and now I, we are seeing like food companies like releasing nfts and consumers engaged in that and like they are adopting like this, this technology this whole like world and I really see that we are really moving towards that. And Tian is more into this like metaverse and <laughs> Web3. I'm still getting my head around. <laughs> I won't lie. Sometimes it's hard to kind of uh, understand the, the, the practical application. But we see that the companies, they want to be there. They are trying, yeah, yeah. like, figuring out ways. And, 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 and I, I really think that this is our new, like, future. Yeah, yeah. no, no, I agree. Uh, so can, before we go on, okay, can we can we do like a kind of sense check for other people? Because we're we're trying to use this this podcast actually to get people up to speed as well. And not that we're saying that like we're operating on a completely different level to other people, but maybe you are what you read, you know. So if you've read something about Web three, um, maybe you've read an actual definition of it. But some people wouldn't have heard about it before. This may be the first time they're hearing about Web three. So I'm going to open this up to both of you, and maybe to Aiden if if you have any idea about it. But can you give like a like a super layman's term explanation of what Web three is? So, um, so Web three, you can it, it's it's a hot topic these days, right? So, um, I'm trying to get my cheat sheet open here as well. But if you're talking about like like Bitcoin, like blockchain, those are part of part of the Web three. 
right? But um, the thing that we are interested in that's related to the property, the features of Web3 that's more in the context more related to our interest. First of all, it is, um, is the decentralization. So yeah, so when you're using the web, web three, there is no, there's no middleman anymore. It's not there's any party that can kind of um, monitor, uh, moderate or cut off or whatever. So this is like your communication directly with a source, this decentralization it's important in the Web3 world. There's also like individual ownership. So, and the privacy that related to it. So when you use the blockchain technology, you are, you are, you own something and that thing is kind of marked, you, it's right, written down in the blockchain and that can be proven. Before in the digital world, it's very difficult. So you own a Mona Lisa picture and the real one is in the, in the museum, but it look about the same and you have 10 pictures. They, they all look about the same. You really cannot declare who is, which is which and who owns what. But in the digital world with the help of like NFTs, non-fungible yeah. fungible tokens, you can be really find a way to see who owns what. So that is another um, like feature, a key feature in, in um, Web3 world. And then something that kind of come back to what you said, Trevor, about um, the experience and, and, and Aiden as well with the you know, cultural differences about the flavor and, and everything. I think one, one good thing that comes out, comes out of Web3 will be the personalized the personalized experience because everybody can own their own thing in a private kind of their wallet or um, data, you know, you own your data and it's protected by blockchain. It's, it's possible with the help of AI, like machine learning prediction, it's, 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 it, it will be possible to make your own experience in the digital world again. It, either it's, it could be like a replicate of the real physical one, or it's just according to your preference, your experience, your culture, your um, past memory, whatever. It can be personalized to your own taste and smell, you know, your experience about food or- Yeah, yeah and, and, and kind of personalized to your own ability to experience. You know, so like we know that there's certain things that maybe uh, you are um, anosmic to, like certain molecules or certain things that you're anosmic to, or certain ways that uh, um, some foods are heightened, some people like a certain type of food. So you'd be able to kind of like tailor make uh, the perfect experience that is ultimately designed just for you. And I guess the, the whole uh, link between blockchain uh, in, I guess in Web3, the big thing at the moment or the big push uh, initially was this decentralization and um, the, the first markets that kind of took hold of that were financial markets because we pay someone else to, to protect our money and therefore, and verify that this is in fact our wealth. Whereas with Web3 and, and using blockchain, in the future, you wouldn't necessarily need to do this. So this is that decentralization of it is that the system is the controller, you know? So the framework is how the game works as, as like it became kind of a snap line. And um, mm -hmm. That offers many appealing features, I guess, to this decentralized system itself and also to the individual. 
the there's a moral implication that I was thinking about later on is that sometimes uh, how do you now go to pay taxes, you know, or where is the incentive now for for people to actually pay for the the fungible tokens of life of normal life, you know, if most of your wealth is is within a digital realm, um, there is less necessity to to now uh, support a, a physical local community and maybe less stress to, to do it, you know, so there's no, uh, there's no Leviathan on your back, you know, mm. and I'm sorry that I sometimes bring in no. <laughs> philosophical, moralistic things, but like, I think yeah. it's something that we need to kind of focus on to think about what, what is the, what are the consequences of the, of the things that we're working on now? I kind all these things is, is amazing what the future is going to hold, but it also kind of freaks me out a little bit because for me, when I buy something, it's the, un, you know, you're not expecting what it's going to be like. It could be totally rubbish or it could be totally great. And for me, I learn so much from things that are not good because I want to know why isn't it good in, in changing things to make it seem better. So therefore, do you think this learning process will be, is in much depth and things will be more personalized? Because it will just be what you expect, won't it? Or will that change your perception because you expect it? I don't know. That mess comes as a weird paradigm in my kind of head of what it might, might do to you. <laughs> you I, mean, feel like, you, I feel you like mean, everything messes us up, doesn't it? Well, I like think everything it may, somehow messes us I up. Think this, I think AI and what everything of personalized consumerism of, of foods might need to have some warning on the back, phone this number if this has affected you or something, because <laughs> I don't know. I think it might mess with my brain. There are, there are a few questions I want to I kind of answer because I, I get that the four of us could probably chat for like four weeks about random stuff um, and it's not the point is now you know like this is not random you know mm. these things sound random if you've never heard about them before but this is like this is real it's becoming like uh fundamental foundational it's a it's a new approach to the way that that uh, reality will be structured and the way that we're looking at things in the not too distant future some of these things are like underway right right now even though we're not all aware of it so, but there are some 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 like um, questions that I think would be good to answer for everyone. So there's a question we, we just received, which is, and this is for both of you, how precise are um, AI's predictions and are there models for specific groups of consumers, i.e. like a specific gender, specific ethnicity, ethnicity? And do you find that certain groups are more predictable than others? You know, it's kind of leading to that that, that idea of um, I, I I know there's an acronym, but it's like when most of the studies were done on Western students, then that's that's what kind of skewed the results. You know, mm. yeah. and and I don't know what you guys think about that. Well, I can I can, I can start and then we can complement. But how how precise are AI's predictions? This is a tough question because it's important to to understand that the predictions depend on the part of your data. So the very first thing to think about is what's your data you wanna predict. Um, so not only, let's say, if you wanna predict as Tian like gave an example, there are plenty of examples, but you wanna predict consumer response based on, let's say sensory uh, profile, but how many products you have and uh, how many attributes and how many consumers evaluated your products. And based on the consumers, um, if you are interested to see like segmentations, if you're interested to see gender or group ages, okay, 
did you design your research to capture that? Or 80% of your consumers are women? Or most of your consumers, they fall in one group, um, age group. So the first thing is, AI can be very precise if you have a good data set. And this is like the key that we always like, are we always discussing with our clients and not sometimes not only the number of, let's say products and consumer, but when we say quality is also um, how diverse your products are. Because once you develop like a machine learning model, of course, this machine learning model can be very good, but it has limitations. It's gonna predict very well uh, in the range it was trained, right? So you need to make sure that you have products covering the widest range possible. So your model is gonna be the widest possible as well. So I guess the, the, the prediction, the, the how precise it depends on how um, your data, like your data's uh, quality. So if you have a good data set, what we see here is, yeah, it can be very precise. You, you can have very good uh, response. Um, and I guess, I guess, statistically speaking, that was always the case, you know, everything uh, like rubbish in, rubbish out, and yeah. uh, you need to have an accurate subsection of a particular community that you want to represent. And that's not necessarily with human beings, but with any kind of data analysis. Um, but, <laughs> okay, please bear with me for one second. Yeah. So I wanted to get t-shirts made. Yeah. And they were going to be like kind of a bit geeky. Well, probably really geeky, but on the front, it's going to say, what does K mean? And then on the back, it's going to say, K means clustering. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So that's like, <laughs> so that's a, it's a really like in-house joke. Yeah. And if people get it, then obviously they'll laugh. And if they don't get it, then they'll think I'm a fool. But if I make these t-shirts, will you buy them? <laughs> that's a good one. I'll get it. <laughs> 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 so it so the reason I I brought up k-means clustering and different methods of clustering um, is it it gives us the ability with large data sets um, to actually use AI for data defined clusters rather than self defined clustering. Mm. You know, when you get people to fill out a form and say, um, like, let me tell me your demographics. You know. Are you between the ages of this or this? Are you, uh, uh, what ethnicity are you? What religion, whatever. All of those things are self-defined. You know, you, they are defined by them, but it doesn't tell you really anything about um, purchasing power or um, purchasing motivation, you know? So sometimes having a large data set and getting data to cluster um, and AI to cluster that data based on results rather than having a user-defined clustering system I think that actually offers a massive feature. And to me, with regards to that particular uh, question of like how precise are AI's predictions, if anything, more precise than what we had before AI. Would you guys agree with that? Of course, of course. Yeah, I, I feel like, yeah, the whole, the whole idea of machine learning is to take, is to kind of use this unbiased decision by, by by the algorithm to figure out what is the important and cluster them and choose what dimension features are important for this data set. So yeah, so just to add a little bit to, to what Vanessa said, I think that's exactly right. The data is the, the most important part. So the, the model can only see what this data have told you. 
right? If it's outside of what this data have told you, there will be no prediction at all. Like you're rating all the chocolate related cakes and you want to predict a fruit cake, there will be have no chance. So <laughs> yeah, that will be what, how, how AI is you know, precise. It just depends on the data. Yeah, you have seen. So I guess that in a way, the data is never wrong, but our interpretation of the data can be fully skewed because we don't fully understand the data. You know, like we've selected the wrong test or we've focused on the wrong sensory attributes to uh, encompass a, a data set that is maybe like uh, far removed from, from what we're judging it by. Um, I think all of these things are super, super cool. And actually they lead on to um, sometimes uh, interesting insights um, and sometimes absolutely retarded um geeky t-shirts that we're all going to buy yep <laughs> remember k means clustering well i i think i'd have to, i'd have to be the t-shirt the other way around to actually know what k meant but yeah <laughs> k means clustering and then at the yeah. what does k mean yeah yeah oh, but the, this would be kind of like uh, learning and then... Yeah, um, guess what the question is, yeah. <laughs> what have you got, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So there's another question that we have about um, uh, electronic noses and tongues and uh, whether they'd be obviously specifically useful for QC departments to kind of uh, as a high throughput screening method. And I think, yeah, for sure, that would definitely work, especially if you were maybe... or had an accurate way of developing a biomimetic sensor or sensor array that was able to uh, kind of perform better than a sensory panel, you know, because if it's everything that is possible to be tasted, then I guess that could work. But um, we need to get some developers working on that ASAP. In my kind of experience, we have an e-tongue in our lab. And when I heard about it, I was pretty disappointed with the way it looks because I thought it was like a tongue thing, but it's literally just, I don't know why I just imagined a rubber tongue just sort of dipping, like, like splashing about in little vials. But, but it's, it's such a, it's such an odd thing. And like, I, I mean, the more I've read into the e-tongue, I can't remember, I can't obviously name brands, but that you don't know what's happening behind it all and how it's producing these algorithms, which kind of, to me, suggests you'd have to use the same instrument for all the measurements and other articles to compare. Because, I mean, how does it create all these these types of maps? And I think it creates all these kind of types mm -hmm. of radar charts, doesn't it? Um, yeah, but in a way, like every single time you taste something, you're using the same equipment every time. Uh, like it's not like you you get someone else's tongue to taste something for you. No, you don't. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I think but it's I think... calibrated in a, we a weird way, isn't it? Um, yeah. So we are we though. We are calibrated yeah. in an unusual way, but yeah. not really calibrated. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess the electronic nose and tongue. They're just trying to you know use like a sensor to detect some specific chemicals. So if you're mm. you know exactly what is in your uh, substance, your drink or whatever, then if that is a high amount, you can design a sensor that is specifically testing that. It just, it works to try to capture the way that the, like the tongue is working, word nose is working, it's a receptor binding to chemicals, right? If you have the, a good amount of that chemical in the substance, it will capture that and can give you a reading. So that would be the fundamental idea behind, behind electric nose and tongues. But it's I, I my the, the part that it kind of make me a little bit suspicious is that 
our experience, especially for food, is is very rich, very very rich. Of course, for the quality control, this type of things is very useful because you probably are, you you're just more interested in a couple say bad substances that's specific for this type of let's say orange juice or alcohol or whatever. But to to try to use that more broadly, that will need to to capture a big a big library of different chemical stimulation. And some of those can be very low. So, so this thing has to be very sensitive. sensitive. Yeah. yeah. So it sort of needs to be eventually solved on a higher level, like how this how this chemical sense is coded, decoded by the brain, because we kind of, it's like a rich informational chemicals that the brain, the way that brain works is kind of try to subtract it into a smaller dimensions and smaller dimension and try to interpret it. So that part, even on science part, people are not 100% clear. There are mm. multiple breakthrough of how your brain, your, you know, your, your nerves first go to brainstem and then the brainstem mm -hmm. goes to your cortex. All of those, especially for taste and smell, is first yeah. interpreted in your, in your brainstem. So it's very yeah. old yeah. sense. Situation is, is the critical part, yeah. There's a lecture series that, that happens uh, quite often. I think it's like every second Friday or something like that, something like that, but it's called Neural Mechanisms. And I'll send you guys the link to it. That's really good. I don't know if you've heard about it already, but it's a it's kind of the, it's a frontier kind of group that's looking at the, like explaining the chemical senses a bit better and seeing how perhaps our philosophy and our thinking about the chemical senses might be flawed somewhat because a lot of how we think of the chemical senses, we actually um, have learned from um, vision, you know, and they don't work the same, you know, they don't work the same at all. But then also linking that into neuroscience. So like, what, what, what are the empirical measures that we can actually make uh, neuroscientifically from activity that, that can um, correlate some of the ideas that we have? So I'll send you the link because it's quite cool. It's called Neural mm. Mechanisms. Um, Aiden, do you have any quick quick answer? So do you know sometimes we do this like a uh, quick quick answer round? Quick answer round, a quick question yeah. round. So or to, to what you were oh to, to that kind of technology. Yeah. No, 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 yeah. to anything. To anything you want. To with with regards to food in general. Or, do you know some of those things that we did with some of the previous uh, uh, interviewees? Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start. Okay, so favorite cuisine. Um. Italian, mine. <laughs> okay, uh, Vanessa, you just got one point. One point to Vanessa. <laughs> Jan, you need to pick up your game. <laughs> okay, uh, next question. Bus or bicycle? What? <laughs> Can you repeat? <laughs> bus or bicycle? Um, would you, zero for me. <laughs> would, you, would you go by bus or bicycle? Oh, bicycle. <laughs> Two for Vanessa. Jan. I think you're overthinking this quick fire round. <laughs> yeah. Was an English technical issue now for me. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I'm asking these stupid so questions hard. to give Aiden. <laughs> the questions are too hard. <laughs> They're just, they don't come out of my head. They're just like, yeah. I think my brain is so calibrated to just like flavor stuff. I'm very, yeah, I, I, I'm like many topics football can't contribute to or things like that. It's, I'm not saying I can't I contribute. Either. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's just it's just not worthy. Yeah, I get that. I get that a lot. Okay, so that was a quick fire round. 
Uh, congratulations, Vanessa. You are our inaugural champion of quick, okay, no, quick I'm fire round. My, my means t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be, it's in the post. It's in the post already. Okay. We've automated our delivery systems. <laughs> Great. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So maybe some, some uh, I guess we're coming up to time. So it's like there's some finalizing questions. And I think that it's been so valuable talking to you already. And I think it's going to be valuable to listen to again, because it starts people thinking about just kind of the future, but also the fact that these things are, are really happening now, you know, so it's about uh, this idea of get on the bus or get left behind or get on the bicycle, but you're still going to be left behind if you don't get on. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, okay. So I, I kind of want to know, you know, so we've maybe not Aiden, but I, I guess the three of us never really intended or thought that we would end up in this kind of job or these roles. So the, my job is not, uh, is not the same as yours, but it's not 100% dissimilar. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to know what you guys think about, like, if you were to, to change career, so to change jobs, what do you think you would find interesting to do? A road sweeper. Yeah, and why? I wanted to be a road sweeper as a child. That was what I did on the uh, Monday to Friday, and then I wanted to be a train driver Saturday and Sunday. But that, that was just me. So just weekend for the trains? Yeah. Okay. And where would you be sweeping streets on from, uh, like during the week? Just, just wherever I get put to with the train. I guess if I get, had to go down to London, I'd be sweeping the streets of London. I? <laughs> Monday to Friday, I don't know. But okay, yeah, cool. That's what I want to do. And, and what now? Like in the future, what what would you like to do? Well, I don't know how AI might affect road sweeping. So I might not be able to do that job in the future. I might have to just do it now while they actually exist. Yeah, good. You better not waste your time. Yeah. Get onto that sweeping the road. Yeah. And do you do you guys do you guys have any answers to that? They don't they don't have to be as ridiculous. They can be. Like do you find do you find that you've fallen into a position? that you maybe didn't expect or anticipate that you would. But now that you're in it, you feel like, actually, this is super fascinating and I don't feel like I'm going to leave it. I think this is a cool job and I want to carry on. Is, is that maybe a more realistic answer? I think so. Well, yeah, for me, yes. I, I cannot think another thing. Um, I guess I, I, I really like this, this, this path, like the career that I'm following. So, yeah. I'm happy. <laughs> I cannot think about something else. Right. For me, um, what I really want to do um, is now that now that I have experience in, you know, like sensory AI and all those cool stuff. Um, but I always came from the background that's interested in neuroscience. So I, I hope one day I can connect this together. I, I feel like I I know pieces of things, but I need to connect them together. So that would be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's a really cool answer as well, because it's like, it may be in the same field, but the field is changing in order to accommodate those other passions. Yeah. Which is really cool. And th th that's the point, like all of this is all of this, even this conversation that we're having now, this is all, this is all controlled by neuroscience, you know? So um, it'd be cooler to understand that, but also I guess, um, this is another uh, strap line that other people will um, mm. will have to put as a hashtag, but neural link, you know, 
Imagine yeah. if we become part of the machine. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. And it's really, really cool. Um, guys, thank you so much for your time. And hopefully we can stay in touch in the future. I know I'm, I'm going to be on a, a podcast with, um, I guess, yourselves and with John, but perhaps just with John um, in the near future. And um, I'll try push him uh, to, to answer some of my questions as well as me answering his. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll definitely ask him uh, what K means. <laughs> and hopefully he finds it as funny. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for having us. It was thank yeah. yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you for coming. Thanks, guys. It's really cool. Bye. Thanks, Aiden. Thank you. This has been a deep dive into the fascinating world of flavours with BSF Flavour Talks. I hope that you've seen there's much more behind flavours. It is hard to acquire that right level of experience in order to create the perfect taste. If you've worked up an appetite for flavour signs, stay tuned for more episodes and help support our podcast by sharing it with others on social media or leave us a review. I'm Aidan 